0: Welcome to the Business Sphere. On this podcast, we want to share real stories and real struggles from entrepreneurs who have been where you are. John Fong interviews business professionals and entrepreneurs in many fields to uncover their successes and challenges. We take a deep dive into their journey and provide you with tips and advice to help your business today. Thanks for listening to the Business Fear. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode. Joining me today is Jim Vinoski. He is an advocate for the manufacturing industry, the the backbone of many of our communities. He writes about it on Forbes and also has his own YouTube show and podcast discussing the industrial world. Thanks for being on the show today, Jim. Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate it. So for all the listeners that don't know much about you, if you don't mind sharing with them your journey, a little bit about your backstory and how you became this manufacturing guru that you're um, <laughs> focused on in terms of your ventures now.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, so if I go all the way back to my childhood, the thing that actually got me into manufacturing is I've been a lifelong bicyclist. And when I got you know to the end of high school and was thinking about what I wanted to do in college and for a career, mechanical engineering was a great fit, both from what I excelled in in my studies and you know my personal interests. So um, that's what I went to school for. Came out of uh, college as a mechanical engineer, and I went to work in industry right from the get-go. I started in chemicals, making uh, PVC plastic for my first job. Went through paints and coatings, um, food ingredients, and then finally food proper. Spent about half my career with General Mills, um, spent a little time making bourbon, and and then ran a couple dairy operations. Um, Now I have my own company, uh, Cosgrove Content, that is focused on writing for manufacturers. And that came about because of my Forbes work. So I got tapped about four years ago to become a contributor for Forbes. Had always been a writer myself, but more for you know business uh, and stuff. Never really um, too heavy on publishing. Had a few things published here and there, but had that opportunity come up, and it's just been an absolute blessing. And you know, between my own three plus decades in the manufacturing world, and now um, going on four years of talking to people all over the manufacturing environment, it's just been um, you know just a, a real joy learning about all the really cool stuff we do in this world
0: amazing i mean this is interesting because uh, a lot of mechanical engineers are you know there's so many different industries when you get that degree and all my siblings are actually engineers from computer engineers to environmental engineers to um, one's a nuclear engineer so they do a lot of different engineering and the way people think as engineers versus business owners is completely different because you do a lot of checks and balances QC and the the entire process is a little bit different. The way you think is a little different. Um, So maybe share with the listeners because a lot of the listeners are business minded. How are engineers different and their mindset versus business owners?
1: Yep. So, you know, for me, you touched on an important point, and that is just the breadth of the, the field. You know, I think about just my own field, mechanical engineering, and mechanical engineers are involved, you know, across the board in, in everything manufacturing, everything scientific. Um, you know, pretty much any applied science there is, mechanical engineers are, are doing it. And then you think about the broader field of engineering, and you touched on some of the other uh, disciplines, and, and yeah, so... Now think about the whole world and anywhere you're applying scientific principles, and that's what it's all about. You know, it's putting science to work in the real world. And so, kind of the different approaches. I think engineers uh, are naturally curious about how things work. I know um, I was a tinkerer when I was a kid. I'd tear my toys apart and see how they worked and sometimes even get them back together. <laughs> um, and then you know, we're all about problem solving. Uh, I think, you know, that's a lot of what the, the discipline focuses on, is not just knowing how things work, but knowing how to make them work better or fix them when they break down. Um, and so, yeah, it, it becomes, for people who are just entirely immersed in engineering, there's plenty there to sink your teeth into for a whole career. I went a different path. I I did the kind of factory floor level engineering for a number of years and then decided that I would go into management, and then that led me more in the business uh, direction. And so I've kind of gotten, you know, both ends. Um, did a lot of business development work in my closing years with General Mills, and have run plants since then. Um, worked at higher level jobs in corporations, and you know, kind of got my MBA. Uh, you know, not in school, but in the real world.
0: And that's very unique perspective that you're giving because people are so ingrained in one focus area. Yeah. And when you become an expert 10 plus years doing a certain thing, um, like as in the manufacturing floor, you're a GM or you're an operator and you're doing a lot of QC or you're designing the, the floor uh, models, right? Um, you become an expert at that. Right. And it's a lot of, People don't want to make that transition or shift because it's a brand new world altogether. So what triggered you to move away from the floor in the manufacturing world to then the management and learning about business development or corporate leadership structure and operations in that world?
1: Right. Yeah. I think for me, it was, I've always just been incredibly hungry to learn new things and i got to that point in my career where i truly was viewed as the technical expert i was really one of two uh, packaging engineers at general mills who was sent all over the country all over the world to help other people solve their packaging problems and that certainly could have been you know what i finished my career out doing there was plenty there to like i said sink your teeth into and build a career around but what i found as i got really deep into that is that you know there were certainly the the technical challenges, the technical causes for problems, and the the machinery and systems side that would always need that attention. But I got to a point where I realized the bigger part of the problems that I was running into and having to solve weren't on the equipment side, they were on the people side. And so wanting that learning, having that um, hunger to learn more, I had to make that decision and so say either I'm gonna to continue to be focused on, on more of the pure technical and miss out on this, or gonna have to shift gears and maybe take a step back and, and go a different direction. And of course we know which choice I made. Uh, and I, I never regretted it because it was such a new world of, of learning that I'd never even anticipated.
0: So this is a great pivot to learn a little bit about your yourself personally, because when you're ingrained in something and you start earning, you know, good status, good income, and you're comfortable, what triggered you? And you mentioned you were curious, Mm -hmm. but honestly, a lot of people are afraid of the unknown and At that stage of your life, and maybe, you know, you could share what was going on in your, you know, world at that time to make that shift. Because just like every, you know, employee that wants to be a manager that maybe wants to do a side hustle of an entrepreneurial business, there's moments in their lives that they can't do that. They need to focus Mm -hmm. on needs, right? Where Mm -hmm. they got to support their family, they got food, shelter, they got uh, bare necessities to cover. And that's why they'd rather take on the salary, stable income, less risk. Um, what triggered you in the the bigger picture mm-hmm. of what mattered for you to take that next journey?
1: Yeah, for me, well, let me get to that in a second. I think for anyone, when you run into that fear and you want to get past it, you have to learn about yourself and what's going to motivate you to take that next step and and face into that discomfort and that, you know, potential step backward or whatever you want to view it as, whatever's keeping you, uh, kind of holding you back from doing that, you, you need to know what's going to motivate you to do it and get after that. For me, and this is true of every area of my life, the thing that's always been a primary motivator for me is when people tell me I can't do it. And it's funny because those critical moments through my life where I've had to make some shift or, or had to take some big move. Um, it's like, there was always someone there providing that impetus, you know, coming in and saying, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but you're never going to do it. You're too comfortable. You're, you know, you, 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 you won't take the step. And as soon as they say that, it's like, okay, well then I'm doing it <laughs> just to show you that I can't,
0: so, oh, but that's in you. It's ingrained yeah, in you, right? Where yep. you, you are self-motivated. You are self-disciplined to acknowledge that there's people out there that's going to doubt you. But when you hear that, it actually triggers you to overcome that and prove to them that you're more than what they believe. Mm-hmm. And were these people very close to you in your life? Were they other colleagues, managers, peers, um, you know, close ties, because yeah. those are the people that really impact your life, right? right. To make, it, make you want to prove to them something versus just a, an acquaintance.
1: Yeah. Um, and it was a mix. You know, sometimes it was people who weren't necessarily directly involved in the work I was doing, but were very close to me and, you know, felt like they knew me very well and, and wanted to say, no, you know, you're not going to be able to do this for some reason or other. Um, other times it was someone who was up the ladder from me who was saying, you know what you just don't have what it takes. Yeah, well, I'll show you. <laughs> I have more than what it takes. So yeah, you know I think it's uh, it's part of that learning process of knowing yourself and you know that's what it was for me for someone else it could be something totally different but you got to have something that's going to get you to you know kind of gird your loins and say, you know what I'm going to take the leap whether it's painful or uncomfortable or whatever
0: and were there people along your journey um that you can think of that really helped you to have that kind of mindset to be more determined to be more goal-oriented you know to prove people wrong
1: yeah you know i think that's the flip side of it is there have always been those people who um knew me even better than the naysayers and who were the supporters and people who are saying, you know what, if you put your mind to this, you can absolutely do it. I remember one person in particular just saying, you know what, from what I know of you, it doesn't matter what you decide you're going to do, you're going to succeed at it because there's no way you're going to stop until you do. And so, you know, having that kind of backing and that when when you're doubting yourself, that other person or other people who are in your corner and helping push you along is is critical too absolutely
0: that's amazing to have that whole um you know different perspectives right because yeah people are gonna throw things at you and you have to determine what to take in and utilize for your own good right Um, absolutely so it's great to hear. And then during that next phase, which you jumped into the business world, right, of mm-hmm. um, learning how things operate and you were maybe not doing the, the stuff on the floor anymore. you were learning about leadership and relationships and communication and how, um, you know, to motivate others because it's a different way of running you know, going to work, really? yeah, what did right. you learn? What were some of the the hardest things that you had to adapt to and change in terms of perspectives on that next career move of yours?
1: Yeah, I think you know one of the big uh, adjustments I had to make was you know, coming from the technical background, it was always you're just going to push through and make things happen no matter what it took and that's all well and good, but when it's about motivating people that can too often then fall into um, trying to force people to do things that they may not want to do versus showing them why they should want to do it. And so I know in my early career, early part of my career on the management side, um, you know, it was very much the authoritarian approach and kind of, you know, not so much about team building, but laying out the, the business objectives and then kind of hammering people until we got to them, which, you know, in the end it can work, but the trouble is along the way, you're demotivating your people. They don't want to deal with that day in and day out. And so um, I quickly learned that, you know, not everyone has the stomach um, that some people have for that kind of thing. And, and really even the ones who kind of show you that, yeah, I'm going to step up and, and, and uh, deliver when I'm challenged that way, really over time, they don't like it either. In the end, it really is truly about finding what's going to motivate each individual on your team and giving them that motivation. So it's very much getting outside yourself and serving people, which is what the leader really ought to be doing.
0: And that's great that you're saying this because it's acknowledging what's important in individuals as opposed to the business. And you have to cut through that whole mindset of culture of, yes, it's in for profit loss, it's margin, it's all about supply and reduce costs, and then increase productivity or efficiency. But end of the day, you're dealing with humans, and each human learn at a different pace, they absorb content differently, and they are acknowledging different reward systems differently. So it's great that you're learning this and sharing this. So what were some of these lessons that you've learned as a manager? Because, you know, different stages of management requires a different type of personality as well. And as a, you know, junior manager versus a, a C level suite or the owner, it's a different type of management system as well. If you don't mind sharing right. some of that, that you've learned, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. You know, when you're at the lower level, um, it's really about being very closely intertwined with your people and being that first level support for each individual on your team. And so when you're trying to build a strong team, it truly is. Just like you said, it's, it's um, engaging with those individuals as individuals understanding the strengths and uh, challenges of each and, you know, leveraging those strengths of each person on the team. As you move up the ladder, then you're at that further remove. And what you're really doing is building leaders who do that for you. And so it's not so much about focusing on the people on the floor anymore, although they're still certainly a concern and someone uh, that that you should be acknowledging and, and valuing. But it's Building the kinds of leaders who are going to deliver what you've learned to do successfully and building a strong team. So, yeah, and that's the mindset I'm in now is I'm not I'm not the floor leader anymore. I'm building those strong leaders of the future.
0: And that's a a different type of skill set altogether. And that's why I've learned as well, growing an agency that I own. Um, I no longer am doing the one-on-one meetings. I'm really to harvest my managers to teach them or, you know, learn from them, their gaps, their strengths, their weaknesses, but really right. to teach them how to delegate accordingly. Yep. And, and the more you let go, let them make more mistakes and learn and let them evolve to be more, more open to sharing because a lot of people are afraid to yep. take these next steps. And what I'm trying to do is equip them to challenge them, but also let them make mistakes that are not detrimental to the business. It's more learnings and it's it's challenging, it's fun, but it's a different skill set altogether. And it's, you know, and it's not for everyone and every person has to acknowledge where they want to be at different stages of their lives as well. Um, so what made you want to do this? Because you were curious, and now that you've seen both sides, what do you like about being on the floor versus the the management leader, the business, and the things, like pros and cons to it all?
1: Well, as I said, I think the the primary motivator was just that opportunity to learn something completely different and uh, apply those uh, lessons to build that future success. I think along the way, uh, to me, another motivation that came along is I'm just going to be honest, there really aren't a lot of great leaders out there. You know, there's a lot of people who do what I did early on and they think they have to hammer everyone. Um, a lot of people who don't value the individuals, who don't um, praise people, who don't um, help others get past their fears and understand, you know, they're not always going to be 100%. And, uh, give them leeway to to ebb and flow as we humans always do. You know, another piece of it that I've learned along the way is it also flows both directions. You know, you're, you're educating the people who are lower uh, on the ladder than you are, but you also have to be educating the people above you because they have the same challenges. They have the fears. They have the kind of points that they're not wanting to get past because of their own either self-imposed limitations or, like you said, worries about you know, security, comfort, all of that. Um, Management styles, you know, you have to flex. There could be that authoritarian above you and you're trying to be this servant leader and and you've got to make that work somehow um, and maybe educate that person who's higher ranking than you are. And so it's a constant challenge. I think, you know, once you find that magic of truly being the, the person who's serving the people working for you, now you've also got to instruct the other leaders around you, uh, so that they can succeed as fully as possible.
0: And it's it's interesting you're saying this because as a manufacturer or someone that's doing blue collar work, um, it's always uh, set up to have hierarchy right yep. where you're the floor you're the operator assembly manager whatever it may be and there's always a hierarchical system right um and there's a lot of fear when people speak out and there's a lot of fear of you know people you know afraid of getting you know <laughs> reduce hours cut costs because a lot of these right. people are sole breadwinners in their family and households right yeah. so how how did you overcome that? Or how did you move up in the ladder? How did and how would you advise people in the same situation that you were to kind of speak up without any fear? Because a lot of people that do speak up might be reprimanded.
1: Yeah, and that's a great point. You know, I think you're right in calling out manufacturing in particular. There's a whole lot I love about the world I've been in for decades now. But there's the pieces I have to acknowledge have not been right. You know, we, because of the nature of our business, the, the you know, we're where the rubber meets the road. In manufacturing, you're either making stuff that you can sell for a profit or you're not. And when you're not, you fail. And so, you know, I think part of that constant pressure has driven a culture that at times can be somewhat destructive, you know, whether that's expecting Too much of people, expecting people to be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year long, um, expecting people to deal with, um, you know, leaders who are more technical experts than leadership experts, and therefore, you know, may not be very good leaders at all. Uh, Like you say, dealing with that pressure of uh, not speaking up, not pushing change, those kinds of things. And so, I mean, I even wrote an article a few years ago about, you know, if we want to help with our recruiting difficulties in manufacturing, let's make a manufacturing suck less. And I mean it, you know, um, that recruiting difficulty has only gotten more challenging in the intervening years since I wrote that. And, and so a piece of it has to be, okay, we've let kind of that, that old way linger for far too long. And, and those of us who have learned from really good leadership gurus and and, uh, demonstrated uh, true leaders, uh, servant leaders on how to do it right. It's incumbent on us to help change that whole manufacturing picture. And, and you know, you hear it from young people today, they don't want to go in manufacturing because they see it as dirty and um, uncomfortable and, and, and uh, poor culture, you know, and those are things that we've got to get after and fix. And the way we do it is by treating our people right and getting them to be our salespeople, getting them to be the, the voices out there saying, no, this is a great career option. And this is
0: a great topic. So I'm going to move into uh, learning a little bit about the manufacturing field for all the listeners. So just to give you a perspective, I actually did a lot of line work uh, when I was in college and, um, you know, just side, side work, right? Summer yeah. jobs. And I was just packaging goods into boxes and I saw a lot of people doing it 12 hour shifts continental Mm -hmm. shifts and it was very hard mentally to stay focused to do the same task every single day and that's the fear like to speak up you're getting paid fairly well to do not uh, a very difficult task and then I look at the business end now that I've been working with a lot of business owners And it's hard to get people to just do what they're told right? to not speak up. And then there's profit margins and then competition because you're competing on not just a local level or national level, now international level because of globalization. And then you're competing on price, you're competing on supply chain, you're competing on every factor. And there's always this time. There's there's like. Uh, you know, the, the assembly line trying to work as efficient as possible, 24 hour days. And whenever there's a downtime, it costs the company money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you keep people engaged for a very long time and keep the operation going? Because when it's down, you're losing money. So on the business end and, and I look at every business, very similar. Manufacturing is a little bit different, but, very similar to a service-based trade business or a professional service it doesn't really matter you have right. to understand the business itself exactly um, and so if you don't mind sharing like the business end of it mm-hmm. and the manufacturing end because every individual plays a vital role in their their tasks right their job yep. role and yep. in order for the business to be Uh, profitable or operating for many, many years, it has to be in an alignment and everyone has to be on the same page. So if you don't mind sharing, that would be great, Jim.
1: That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let me throw out a few things. So I think one of the fundamentals is, you know, you talked about um, people getting paid fairly well, but then they're in these really difficult schedules. And I think one of the keys that people who are running manufacturing operations need to know is we've been focused on labor as a cost center for decades now. And just, you know, pairing that back, pairing that back, constant cutting. Um, but if you look at labor as, you know, the line on a p it's not that big. You know, for most operations, it might be 10%. And so there are other places you can go to get savings and be competitive. To me, one of the last places you should be looking at is making your workers who are delivering the goods for you and making you a success, making them be the ones who suffer to try to make you competitive. If they're suffering, you're doing something wrong. Um, another piece of it is that um, there's a lot of different ways to get after that now, you know, that, 12-hour schedule. Um, that For a while there, I think a lot of people like that. It's a good way to make a bunch of money and, and you know live a really good lifestyle. But I think along the way, what we've learned is it's just not sustainable. People doing that for years and years on end, especially when you've cut your total staffing down and people are constantly being pulled not only in on their own schedule, but having to cover vacations and things like that. You just wear people out. And so I think we really need to look at how we're scheduling people. Um, I know a lot of companies now are are instituting ways for flex workers to come in and help round out their staffing. You know, whether that's people who um, maybe were working full-time in manufacturing, could have had kids or decided it wasn't what they wanted to do for a full-time job, but will come in um, and work part-time schedules. Retirees, another great example. People who don't want to quite be gone entirely, but also don't want to work that, you know, 40, 50, 60 hour week. And so to me, one of the keys is we've really got to look at people not as a cost center, but as that resource who are fundamental in delivering the goods for us. And then if you want to look at ways to save money, have the people be the resource to tell you where to save money, not the resource where you constantly chop and make their lives miserable. Um, the experts I've always said are the ones who are closest to where the work happens. So the folks who are running your machines know a lot more about those machines than anyone who has the engineer title that I have, and certainly a lot more than you know, managers and executives as you go up the line who aren't on the floor every single day. So tap into them and find those places where money is being squandered. That's where your competitiveness is.
0: And that's a really good point because certain areas in, in the world they're known for quality work. And you look at Japan or Germany and certain countries and what do they invest their money on? It's the experts frontline, the people that have been doing the same work that are passionate, that devote all their time energy to be the best operators or doing whatever that task and labor. And they do it passionately. They wake up, they do it. And and I look at like Japan, for instance, and they're the most Michelin star restaurants in the world, mm-hmm. right? It's because yeah. the art of food, the art that they actually put in that time devotion to practice things for 20, 30 years, right. that same task. And that's why the output of whatever equipment, whatever, you know. Product that they're selling, it seems to be always top notch, and people don't mind paying for that Mm -hmm. because they know people are willing to put in all their hard work to make sure there's no uh, flaws.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you hit on a a key point people are willing to pay for quality. And so much of what we've sent overseas, you know, we're making products with the same name, but they're not the same quality. Um, Yeah. And I think about some of the kind of standout American manufacturers, and that's what they hang their hat on is their extreme high quality. And and they have got what you were talking about that that, uh, the Japanese have around really valuing that expert, that craftsman who has been doing this forever and knows the ins and outs of it and can make a quality product day in, day out. Um, That to me is what sets you apart from all the junk that's being produced out there.
0: And the, and and if you're manufacturing, there's a lot of different industries like aerospace Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, any, anything big medical, I mean, you need top-notch people, knowledge, brain experts, right. But then if you're manufacturing widgets where, you know, you're, you're competing on price. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a whole manufacturing space altogether. And there's so many different types of products out there in the world. Right. And it's consumables. Anyone can just do it and it's all cost um, versus higher margin, maybe higher quality, and it takes a little bit longer, scarcity, whatever it may be. Um, You have to understand as a business, where do you want to play? Right. Because you can't compete on price and quality and be the best at both, right? right? You need to know where
1: your battles are. But you touched on a really critical point and that is like widget makers. And it used to be that widget makers had to rely on manual labor and, and therefore had some really rotten jobs, you know, whether they're dull or dangerous or uh, dirty. But that's not the case anymore. If you're a widget maker and you're still having people doing manual labor, you're crazy. That's where automation comes in. And that's where the the line on automation is so wrong about how, oh, you know, this automation is gonna cost us all our good jobs. No, it's costing us all our bad jobs. And so if you're a widget maker, you still need experts. They're just not the people on the floor who are making stuff because machines should be doing that. Your experts are the ones who are designing those machines, building those machines, programming those machines, setting those machines up to make you thousands of widgets a day that are cost competitive and are high quality.
0: And, and this is a good point because understanding, acknowledging where you want to play, right? Yeah. Automation right. Me- mechanically. You can buy equipment to automate and reduce labor to be more efficient productive and reduce costs right so then you can get skilled laborers to do a lot more r d or do
1: do these people you know
0: whatever it is qc
1: yeah, or whatever it is so well, understanding I, mean, I think what a lot of people find is when they finally take that step and and move toward the automation the people who have been doing the work are the ones who can run that automation best and so you wind up elevating your own people and giving them a better job, better pay, better environment, and they're still your experts.
0: Because they know it better than anyone else because they were front line for many, many years. So Absolutely. it's equipping people, educating people and letting them in on what the future is, right? Yeah. And yeah. with North American manufacturing, which, you know, a lot of people always look at the automotive industry as one of these huge manufacturing industries where it's competitive Mm -hmm. but it's you know why are some of these nations always producing better stuff what are they doing differently um you know and and i think it's a cultural thing i think it's like it's dictated by the top and you know it's it's run by who's making the most money like it's like every industry right it's like how do you equip the people doing the work with ingraining them, harvesting the the, the skill set so that everyone's kind of equal to have an equal say? Because these people doing the line work cannot even, you know, speak to the upper management business people because yeah. they have no pull to actually yeah. make change.
1: And that's crazy. Yep. Um, you know, I love it's part of the Toyota way is that any worker in any factory can stop the process, whether it's a quality problem or a safety problem, something that they see that isn't right. They're empowered to stop the process until that's fixed. And that ought to be the way at every factory in the world.
0: So it's great topics. Um, Where do you see this going? Like how is North American manufacturing and like what, where do you see, um, this in North America mm-hmm. in the next five, 10, 20 years? Like, are we advancing? Are we moving, uh, like bringing back more jobs and opportunities? Are we trying to remove that globalization to bring back more manufacturing here? Right. Um, yep. since you're line, like you see it firsthand.
1: Yeah. We're at an inflection point and, you know, I, I, I'm optimistic that we can that we can grab the opportunity. Um, I'm not 100% convinced we have it yet. Um, you're seeing lots of positive reactions to the breakdowns we've had. You know, um, COVID, if there's a silver lining to it, it was that it showed our management processes where we've designed systems, supply chain systems that are only working well when things work well was really wrong wrongheaded. Um, if you don't have risk management worked into your systems, then you deserve what you get because now you've had the lesson. And so that's driving a lot of this talk of reshoring. It's driving a lot of the automation, the industry 4.0 stuff. Um, I think the risk is that it becomes that negative side where it's just about replacing people and just about trying to make things cheaper rather than really getting after the fundamental problems that we, you and I have just talked about. Um, where I think there's a lot of opportunity though is you think about there's this huge push, for example, for electrification and that's great. I mean, I, I toured a, uh, an EV plant just a couple weeks ago that is just unbelievable. And so the technology that's driving that is fantastic, but we're not thinking big picture, you know, How are we gonna get the the materials to support the amount of electrification just of vehicles alone that we're talking about? Well, we don't currently have it in our country at all. Um, If we continue to let people block mining in the US, we're not getting there. And so we're gonna have to start tackling some of these longstanding questions about how do we become more independent for our resources? how do we power things while we go after this transition? It can't be about just yanking the rug under fossil fuels and thinking electrification is gonna magically be there. And so hopefully there are people who are gonna step up and really have that big picture look. But in the meantime, those of us in individual companies have to take the big picture look for ourselves and be thinking about what are the things that we're blind to or, or you know, in the past have assumed that we shouldn't be assuming or being blind to anymore, and how do we get after that? And so I think, yeah, there's huge opportunity. I I do think that probably more than any other time in my lifetime, the Buy American movement has real legs. The desire to pull things back because of that need to manage our risks and shorten our supply chains has real legs. And I think there's a lot of technology that has the potential to improve our lives in every way, just a question of whether we have the wherewithal
0: to get after it or not. And you, you hit so many good points. Supply chain, yeah, thank but you. Then <laughs> redundancy, right? It's like yeah. no one really looks at how if, if checks and balances and risk management, like what happened in certain situations? Where were the breakdowns? What were secondary third options, right? Um, because we were so reliant on making sure everything flowed properly. Yep. And when something cracks, um, then everyone's running around trying to figure things out. And that's what just happened, right? Yep. Um, and then you, you hit on you know, that electrification, on big picture thinking. The challenge is government is mandated on a shorter period of time. Everything is based on their electoral votes or municipal, you know, everything is governed by what they are governed. And this is the societal issue we have Mm -hmm. in North America, right, where the freedom of choice and we're electric, you know, electric, uh, electrical uh, versus the authoritarian system, right, where they're mandated to cover many generations or even decades, right? Where we are four, five, six year terms. How do you change that system? Because if you look at like big picture and you're looking at 20 years down the road, that foresight, me, you can talk about it and you know, say we should do it, but the system is not built that way. Mm-hmm. And that's gonna be the biggest challenge for any manufacturer because You know, whoever gets elected, they're just going to say what they can to get voted in. And they're going to only do it for a couple more years before. Mm -hmm. they're. And then something else changes in the Mm -hmm. the system. You know what I mean? Like, how do you forecast that in infrastructure, budgeting, everything?
1: It's hard. Yeah. Yeah, And and to be brutally honest, that's where I have the most pessimism, because uh, I don't think we have the right push going on in our government circles to fix the problems that they've caused. I mean, think about the lockdowns alone. They were an utter disaster. No one's admitting fault. You know, no one's putting out ideas on, okay, how does this never happen again? People who took that authority and and eliminated our rights to no good end whatsoever, how do we fix that? No one's talking about it. So, you know, I think in my corner of the world in manufacturing, there is a lot of soul searching going on. People asking those questions about how did the breakdowns occur? How did we miss that that could be coming and how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? I don't see it happening in government and I don't see any push for it to happen in government. To me, the biggest thing that could happen is to scale back government enormously and unleash the creativity that a free society truly has. It's been so constrained by the the hyper growth of government at every level. But yeah, not real optimistic about that.
0: Yeah. And it's uh, interesting to see what's going to happen in this whole realm of manufacturing. But end of the day, I mean, you've shifted your business to now service uh, other manufacturers because Mm -hmm. you can see both ends of it. Um, let's talk a little bit about your transition now. So yeah. you've been out on your own for a couple of years. Uh, how has it been? What do you do currently? and what do you love most about it?
1: Yeah, so I'm definitely in building mode on that stuff. Um, and the and the driver for it was this start of work with Forbes that you know really opened doors for me that never would have been open otherwise. So I owe Forbes a huge debt of gratitude for that. Obviously, I'm filling a need for them. They uh, have a whole manufacturing page. And as you and I know, and I I think you were kind of leaning towards saying it earlier and didn't, there's not a lot of technically minded people who can write well. And so that opportunity for me was golden. I grabbed it. Um, So yeah, I've got the Forbes writing still going on. Um, Through that, I wound up getting contacted by people saying, look, love what you do for Forbes and we have a need in our company because no one can write understandably about the technical stuff we do. And so now I've worked for several different clients and built a company around that specific thing. I'm starting to build a team that, you know, it's all technical people who have that demonstrated ability to write, who can interact with manufacturing people who need that help and do the content production for them. And And so that caused Bosgrove Contents, my company. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, I personally am also, you know, out there doing speaking events and I've got my show you mentioned, Manufacturing Talks, just really trying to hype the story of manufacturing. And I think it's a golden time for manufacturing and getting those really cool stories out in front of people and showing them it's, you know, one of the most creative and productive sectors of our society. It needs to get back into growth mode. And oh, by the way, there's a heck of a lot of fun stuff going on. So join us.
0: And that's great that you share a passion because there's a lot of um, people that don't acknowledge and realize where their gaps are, where their weaknesses are, because running an operation, a manufacturing plant, or being a leader, a business owner, it's, it's challenging Right, and then this piece that you're kind of working and building, which is trying to support these manufacturers with technical (laughs) expertise or written content or whatever kind of content that you're providing to reach out to their prospect base or educate their consumer, their prospects. Right. to, to make a, a dent in that because that's not their skill set. That's not right. their expertise. So, acknowledging that and creating a business outside of that. And so, then you're a niche into that field because not a lot of people know manufacturing and are good writers. Um, so, you can support and help more of those people that acknowledge where their, their weaknesses are. So, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I know you mentioned you're also, you have a YouTube, you have a podcast um, and it's more about like content creation for you now, Mm -hmm. right? Like making sure that it's awareness, letting people know and how has business been and are you enjoying it? Like this is your third, I guess, journey, right? From your career. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So how is this third one versus the other two?
1: Yeah, so this one's really interesting because I think, you know, the other two were more within existing companies or or even paradigms where I had a lot of people around me who had done what I was planning to do and could kind of guide me along with it. You know, not the naysayers who were saying I couldn't do it, but the ones who were on the other side of that saying, yeah, here's here's how you do it and you can definitely make it happen. This time around, it's... Not that there aren't those people who I can look to for help, but they're not right around me. You know, there's no one in my work-a-day world who's saying, yeah, here's what you do to edit a video. Here's what you do to find the tech gear that you need to to record. Um, And so, yeah, what I always say is I'm living proof that you can teach an old dog new tricks. But I'm having to go out a little farther afield to find the support and the, the education I need. Unfortunately, you know, technology helps me out hugely. There, you have YouTube videos for pretty much everything under the sun. You have all these other people who are doing similar things, maybe for different uh, parts of business. People like you, you know, I would never hesitate to call my fellow podcasters, uh, YouTubers, to say, "Look, here, I'm having trouble with this. You know, how do I how do I fix that?" And they're just a, a, an amazing community of people out there who are. After it, not just their own corner of that world, but the whole new technology, a new media world overall, and you know there to help
0: yeah this this new ecosystem that you, now you're being ingrained in, which yeah. is being an entrepreneur so congrats on that yeah, thank it is, you. it's all it's very challenging it's um, lonely for a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, but that's why you need people along the way right like to support you if you have questions if you have challenges um because it's it's hard it's stressful Um, you don't have that stability of like you mentioned people that have already gone through certain things you're doing it yourself and no one's gonna do it better than yourself um and you're not represented by a big brand anymore Right. And therefore you have to create your own and that's the biggest challenge, but it's also the most rewarding because you get a lot more flexibility and as long as you're having fun, that's what it's all about. So, um, Jim, thanks a lot. What's the best way people can reach out to you? Um, and if they do have any questions, you know, check you out.
1: Yeah. So, um, I've got jimvanoski.com. It's my main website and I've got, Cosgrovecontent.com is my business website. Um, Manufacturing Talks is my YouTube channel. And um, definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm super, super active on there. And I've met so many absolutely wonderful people there. So yeah, look me up in any of those places amazing well i want to thank you for all the valuable
0: insights we had a great conversation because yeah this is you. something of interest to me because not only do i service a lot of manufacturers b2b companies but to for someone that actually understands the business end of things and be beyond the shop doing the work it's something that not a lot of people actually understand so i wanted to thank you for your time and your expertise that you're sharing on the show today
1: Absolutely. Thank you, John. It was a lot of fun. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to our latest podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Business Sphere
1: and share this episode. Tune in next week for more interviews from entrepreneurs.